So working our way through Colossians chapter 2, looking at verses 8 to 10 this morning. It says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. As we move into this next paragraph in Colossians 2, I've entitled the message, Philosophy or Christ? Because that's really what Paul is dealing with here in this message. The word philosophy actually appears in verse 8 where he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. It's from two Greek words. Phileo, you recognize that Greek word meaning love. And Sophia, meaning wisdom. And so philosophy is the love of wisdom. And throughout all of history... Mankind has pursued this fascination with wisdom. But philosophy itself really boils down to the effort of people, the effort of mankind, to determine ultimate causes. Throughout the history of the world, man has pursued an understanding of uh, what caused what is, and why it is what it is, and where it's going, and what its intent and purpose is. People have sought to explain the reasons for existence, the purpose of life. And all of the phenomena of the universe is really one great mystery that mankind has been trying to solve. There have been many, many solutions offered by a lot of different philosophers. There have been tens of thousands of philosophers and a different philosophy that comes with each one. And then you add to that the millions upon millions of make-it-as-you-go philosophies and philosophers. Everybody has their own explanation of the universe. This last week I was reading an article online um, entitled, My Truth, Your Truth, or The Truth. This is not a Christian author, not a Christian article by any stretch, but the author pegged our society today and what's wrong with it, but he didn't have an answer for it. Listen, he says, and I quote, It's very common in today's New Age movement and other spiritual circles to hear people saying such things as, and and he quotes, I know we disagree, but you have your truth and I have my truth. Or, We can all say different things because we each have our own truth. Now, I love the way you speak your truth. Or, you know, you may not believe that the Archangel Michael visited me last night and activated my chakras, but that's my truth. Or, if reincarnation is your truth, well, you might be reincarnated, but that's not my truth. (laughs) On and on, you can go. The idea seems to be promulgated, he says, and widely accepted that there is no actual truth, that truth is something purely subjective and personal, little more than a matter of an individual insisting that what they would like to be true is true, simply because they wish it so, and that therefore just about everything, no matter how wild, bizarre, disturbing, unphilosophical, or even dangerous and harmful, 
should be considered as being equally true and tolerated and even celebrated as such. Can people not see the great danger and ignorance in this, the author of this article says. No, we do not each have our own truth, he says, although we do certainly have our own ideas, beliefs, views, and concepts of what is true. But truth itself exists and is one, he says. There is only the truth, not my truth and your truth, his truth or her truth. Then the author author asks this fascinating question. If there is only one truth, only one system or spiritual, philosophical, scientific teaching, only one body of knowledge which is fully and wholly reliable, accurate, and trustworthy, that is, fully and wholly true, where can it be found? Who has it? How can one access it? Where does it come from in the first place? What is it? What does it consist of? And do you know what his conclusion was? There is no room for absolute truth upon any subject whatsoever in a world as finite and conditioned as man is himself, but there are relative truths, and we have to make the best we can of them. Then he makes one more comment here, which I want to read, which is fascinating to me. Outside a certain highly spiritual and elevated state of mind, during which man is at one with the universal mind... He can get naught on earth but relative truth or truths from whatsoever philosophy or religion. Without even knowing it, the author came to the right conclusion. Man has to become one with a universal mind. But the sad part about it is that he didn't know who that universal mind was or how to get to it. Today's philosophy is an exercise in the frustration of a degenerate mind trying to determine ultimate truth without the help of God. And because of that, the truth that they are coming up with is absolute insanity. Why? Because most philosophers deny the existence of God and try to explain everything in the universe in terms of their own rational thinking patterns. And as Solomon would put it, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. It's meaningless. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9 and 10 says this, What no eye has seen, you can't d- discover truth by rationalism. What no ear has heard and what no human mind has conceived, you can't discover truth by experimentation and observation. The things God has prepared for those who love Him... These are the things God has revealed to us by His Holy Spirit. There is a universal mind. The Spirit is the one who reveals the deep things of God. Science, that's experimentation and observation. Philosophy, that's rationalism. And according to 1 Corinthians 2.9, neither of them will ever discover ultimate truth. No wonder Bertrand Russell, at the end of his life, At 90 years of age, all of his life being spent as a philosopher, his last words were, philosophy has proved a washout to me. Thomas Hobbes, the famous English atheistic philosopher, who fostered what they call materialistic psychology and what's called utilitarian morality, when he was drawing near his death, he said, I'm about to take a leap into the dark. I shall be glad to find a hole to creep out of this world. 
So it goes with philosophers and with people who want to eliminate God, and then in their own minds, by their own human efforts, attempt to discover truth, and we come to the insanity of our cultural thinking today. Now, the city of Colossae had their own philosophers, and the little body of believers, the church at Colossae, was was in danger of being infiltrated by them and being duped and caught up in their arguments. And this letter that Paul is writing Um, is mostly about warning them, about letting any false teaching, false philosophy, infiltrate into their congregation. It's always to be expected that the church in every city, every country, every culture, every century will have to fight to hold firm on his doctrinal purity and maintain the truth. Because Satan is always trying to topple the church with false doctrine. And unfortunately today, far too many churches have failed and fallen into false doctrine. And that's Paul's great concern, and it becomes the heart of his letter here to the Colossians. Now as we come to chapter 2, verse 8, we, we come to the heart of the epistle. From verse 8 through the end of the chapter, Paul deals directly with the false teachings that the believers are struggling with, and if not dealt with, could threaten the church in Colossae. Now, Paul has already confirmed the truth of who Christ is and what salvation is. It's only in Christ and Christ alone um, in, the, in the first chapter. And then he, in chapter 3, which we'll be getting to eventually here, through, through the end of the letter, he moves to the practical application of the doctrine in everyday life. In other words, what does this truth mean to me as I act out my Christianity 24-7? But in the middle of that, chapter 1 and chapter 3 and beyond, here in chapter 2, verses 8 to 23, we have what they call a polemical Section. Polemic means a dispute. Here's the argument. This is the argument of the book that Paul is getting at. Here's the dispute that he is addressing at this point. He's saying, now, now let me talk about the actual issue. I've talked about Christ. I've talked about salvation. It's only in Christ. Nothing added to Christ. I'll talk about your practical life in a minute here. But right now, let me attack the false teachings, the false teachers. And we're going to find that as we go through the rest of chapter 2, there are four different aspects of false teaching that threatens the Colossians. First, he deals with humanism in verses 8 through 15. It deals with the whole problem of human philosophy. Secondly, he talks about legalism in verses 16 and 17. Thirdly, there's an aspect of mysticism that he deals with in verses 18 and 19. There, There he talks about a kind of a mystical worshiping of angels. And then fourthly, he deals with asceticism, a kind of a monastic lifestyle, a false kind of humility, and withdrawing from the normal patterns of life, like some kind of recluse or monk. Now, Paul has already called the Colossians to maintain their pure allegiance to Jesus Christ in the first seven verses. We looked at that last couple Sundays. Be strong in mind. Be convinced in the truth. Don't waver about the all-sufficiency of Christ. He's all you need, nothing else. That's a positive side of his argument. I want you to hold on to Christ. You're doing a a good job. Hang in there. I want you to commit yourself with pure allegiance to Him. Don't allow anything else to be brought in. And then now he moves from the positive 
to the negative, if you want to describe it that way. Here's what I want you to avoid, is what he's getting at in this section. Now, false teachers and their teaching fall into the same category that Solomon describes as nothing new under the sun. Same thing, over and over again. What the false teachers were doing 2,000 years ago are basically what they're doing today. They claim to have a superior knowledge. They come along and say, you know, we know what you don't know. We become more evolved in our understanding. We have greater knowledge and insight beyond yours, a higher, truer system than Christians have. You know, that, what you're believing, that's all ancient stuff. That's why Christians need to update their Bible to, to kind of come, come up to par with, uh, to catch up with the times. And so Paul in this section counterattacks that. And what he's saying is there is no higher truth. There is no nobler knowledge. There is no greater insight. There is no superior revelation, no matter what they claim. As we saw last week in verse 3, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Not hidden from us. We have access to it through the Holy Spirit. So with that in mind, let's take a look at the first aspect of humanism, which comes down to two points, really. We are either captured by philosophy or we are complete in Christ. Captured by philosophy or complete in Christ. It's really that simple if you think about it. Every person is either captured by philosophy or complete in Christ. Every person either comes, uh, becomes a victim of human wisdom and following along human reasoning and human logic or they become complete in Christ. That's the choice of every human being. They will choose man's wisdom or God's. Paul says in verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. Paul's warning them and is basically saying, Be careful now that you've been rescued out of the kingdom of darkness, that you don't allow yourself to be enslaved again by that darkness and be carried off as captives. It's similar to what he says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again or trapped again by a yoke of slavery. Do not let yourself be burdened again, he says. It's, it's, not, it's not a once and done thing. We are to be continually being vigilant. It's a constant watchfulness so that we are not led astray. Why? Because a church is always under attack by false teachers and by false philosophies. Jesus himself warned us in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, Watch out, he says, for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly, they're ferocious wolves. You know, I'm not sure how seriously many Christians and churches take the warnings of Scripture. In Matthew 16, verse 6, Jesus says, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. He's talking about legalism. In Acts chapter 12, verse 29, Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock, even from your own number. Men, you can add women, will will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard, he says. 
In Philippians 3, 2, Paul warns, watch out. And he calls them dogs. <laughs> watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of flesh, those who are trying to get you sucked back into the whole circumcision thing again. Peter warned in 2 Peter 3.17, Be on your guard, so that you may be, not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position. And in 1 Peter 5.8, he tells us, Be alert and be sober. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Jesus says, Beware. Paul says, Beware. Peter says, Beware. Folks, we need to Beware. So what are we supposed to be aware of? Well, look at verse 8 again. See to it that no one takes you captive. That's a strong military term. He's not just saying, be careful. He says, beware. Don't let anybody take you captive. Those are fighting words. Don't let, uh, it's a battle we're in, and we are not to be captured. The word for taking captive refers to plundering and carrying away of loot. It refers to taking someone captive and making them a slave. It was used in later non-biblical Greek as well, writing to speak of kidnapping, of plundering a house, or raping of a maiden. This is a strong term he's using. He's saying, don't let anybody kidnap you. Don't let anybody plunder your treasury of truth. Don't let anybody rape you with their false teaching. And that's the thing Paul is warning them against. Beware. To Paul, it was unthinkable that those who had been a ransom paid by the blood of Jesus Christ, those who had been redeemed, bought back from the sin, and those who had been freed from the sin nature could submit themselves to the old nature of sin again. So how is it they're going to lead you off? How is it they're going to capture you? Back to verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through... Hollow and deceptive philosophy. Oh, the philosophy, philosophy may sound really good. It may be pleasing to the emotions. Paul described them in verse 4 as fine-sounding arguments. But that's all they are. There is no truth behind them. They are deceptive. They are delusional. Philosophy... Um, so someone once described philosophy as human wisdom that sounds like it's divine. That's what the cults always offer. You don't really know the truth until you know what we know. We have special knowledge. Yesterday, I came across my laptop. I am subscribed to the Epic Times. And this was fascinating. It just, I, thought, I can't believe this is actually coming at the time that we're talking about this. There's an article here um, written by Mr. Lee Hong Zi, the founder of Falun Gong. Some of you may have heard of that. Um, it's entitled, How Mankind Came to Be. It's January 20th, yesterday, 2023. Here's the full article translated from Chinese. I'm not going to read you the full article, but just let me show you... Uh, Note a few things. If you want it later on to go through it, I, I can send that to you. Um, say, New Year's would normally be a time for sharing a few pleasant remarks about, a, about the occasion, but I am seeing imminent danger approaching humanity and have been called upon by divine beings to pass along, for this reason, several things to everyone in this world. 
Each of what I am about to disclose is a higher, closely guarded secret. And these are being shared to provide a true picture of affairs and to give people another chance at salvation. I read that first paragraph and thought, I'm not going to read this. But you know, I just want to see some of what, what he says. So I, I, I was reading through. Here's a few statements. The, the Creator cherished, cherishes all of the heavenly beings that exist. Is that true? It's not. The expanse of the three realms comprises three major realms. The realm of desire, which is made up of lives on this earth, including humankind. The second realm, the realm of likings, which is above it. And the third realm, further above, known as the realm without likings. He talks about the four stages of the world and of humans as uh, formation, stasis, degeneration, and destruction. He said this, Thus, if a person wishes to return to heaven, he must follow true higher laws and work on himself. When divine beings made man, divine beings made man, they did so at the Creator's behest, and he instructed them to each make human beings in their own unique image. For this reason, there are white, Asian, black, and other races. The purpose of that creator had in directing divine beings to make man was to make use of man in the final times when he would offer all lives of the greater universe, including holy beings, salvation. Salvation is for mankind. It is certain that going through hardships can help people to atone for their sins and karma. And anyone who manages to stay good-natured amidst painful situations and in interpersonal troubles is going to build up merit and virtue and, as a result, will achieve the elevation of his or her soul. I can go on and on and on. Paul calls it deceptive philosophy. The word deceit is interesting in the Bible. Peter uses that Second 2 Peter 2.18, for they mouth empty, boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. Same idea, to entice, to be deceptive. It actually means to catch a fish baited with, uh, uh, with bait on a hook. A fish thinks they're getting something good to eat. And they chomp down and are caught. They're enticed, they're deceived, they're lured away until it's too late. You think it's going to be wonderful. It sounds so good, it sounds so right. You know, it feels right. It appeals to pride, it appeals to emotion, but it turns out to be deceiving. Why? Because the truth is in the revelation of God, spoken finally and clearly in Jesus Christ. There is no value in speculative human philosophy. Herbert Carson, in, in his commentary entitled The Epistles of Paul to the Colossians and Philemon in the Tyndale Commentary Series, he makes this point. This does not mean that he, a believer, should come with a blind, unreasoning faith, but it does mean that instead of bringing philosophical presuppositions which will color his study of Scripture and so prejudice his interpretation, a man comes or a person comes as one conscious of the finiteness of his intellect and aware that his mind also is affected by his sinful nature. Thus he is willing to be taught by the Holy Spirit 
and acknowledge that it is a word of God rather than his own reasoning, which is the final arbiter of truth. So Paul says, beware of philosophy. Beware of some human theory about God, about the world, about life, about whatever. Why? Well, where do human philosophies come from? Paul gives us two sources there in verse 8. Source number one, it depends on human tradition. Source number two, it comes from elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. And both are inadequate sources. First, tradition. It's always been that way. Everybody's always believed that way. All that does is perpetuate inadequate, depraved human thinking patterns. Tradition doesn't mean anything. Just because it's handed down doesn't mean it's true. If you've got error to start with and hand it down, it doesn't make that error any more true as it continues passing down. Here he's saying philosophy comes from the tradition of men, man's way of thinking. Something that's very interesting when you study philosophy is that almost all philosophers build upon other philosophers. In that way, errors are perpetuated and perpetuated, especially when they're condoned and accepted to the point where they eventually become such a blind belief system that the truth cannot be understood. Look at Judaism. By the time Jesus arrived on earth, the Jews had built up such a monstrosity of human wisdom and legalism and, and philosophy that they weren't able to differentiate between traditions of men and the Word of God. You remember in Mark chapter 7 when uh, the Pharisees and scribes asked Jesus, Why don't you disciples live according to the tradition of the elders? They had developed this sophisticated system all based on tradition. And Jesus said to them in verse 8, You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. Then catch what he says in the next verse. You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. In order to go along with, accept, believe, condone the philosophies of People, there's no difference between men and women. Boys can be girls, girls can be boys. There are more than two genders, and on and on we could go. In order to believe these insistent philosophies of our day, we have to set aside God's Word. Second source of human philosophy, Paul says, comes from the elemental spiritual forces of this world. What does that mean? That means that human philosophy, human wisdom, if not received from God's Word, is coming from the basic spiritual forces of this world. That's what Paul was talking about in Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 11. Put on the full full armor of God. Why? So that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against what? The spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The basic religious thoughts from these spiritual forces of evil try to take you back into slavery under legalism. Salvation by works. Take Christ out of the picture. Every other religious system takes you there. 
Christ isn't enough. You've got to do something to earn your salvation. Step away from Jesus. He's not the only way. The Bible is outdated. Can't depend on it anymore. There's no absolute truth. Where's all that coming from? The spiritual forces of evil, the elemental spiritual forces of this world. It's those fine-sounding arguments that deceive that Paul was talking about in verse 4. And as we know, many Christians today, many churches, whole denominations have been swayed by false truths and false philosophies, human reasoning and philosophy, and have turned away from Scripture. They've allowed emotional arguments to dictate their truth, and therefore, as Jesus said, have set aside the commands of God. Paul warns the believers in Colossae, and he warns us to be constantly aware of false truth. That it comes from thinking and philosophy that is not based on God's word and is instigated by Satan himself. Don't get sucked in, Paul says, by the fine-sounding, loving arguments. We have Christ. That's enough. And that takes us to Paul's second point. We are complete in Christ. Rather than going along with the world's thought processes, we should be focused on Christ. Why? Verse 9 and 10. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is ahead over every power and authority. The Greek word used for fullness here is plerao. It means to be full, to be complete. We are to be filled with the Spirit, right? We are complete in Christ. There is nothing lacking. If you're full of something, there's no room for anything else. Listen to Paul's arguments. It's, it's, it's absolutely logical. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. That's why we know the mystery of God, namely Christ, that Paul talks about in verse 2. God was a great mystery. There was so much unknown about God before Jesus was born. But now we can know God because we know Jesus. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Why do people want to reject Jesus Christ? Why don't they want you to talk about him? Just talk about God. Because Jesus Christ is Emmanuel. Jesus Christ is God with us. Jesus is the embodiment of of God Almighty in our midst. For in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. The verb tense for lives is a continuous present tense, if you like grammar. All the fullness of the deity still lives, continues to live in Christ. He is still deity. He is still the fullness of God. Paul says the whole pleroma, the whole fullness, same root word, the whole completeness of God continues to dwell bodily in Christ. Then follow Paul's logic. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have now been brought to fullness. This is basically an if-then statement. If all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form in Christ, then since you are in Christ... You have been brought to fullness. Rather amazing. I don't, want, I don't know if we can 
totally wrap our minds fully around this whole concept of, of the fullness and, and the completeness of Christ in us and all the implications. Christ is the pleroma, the fullness of God, and we have now been brought to pleroma, fullness in Him. God literally passes Himself to us through Christ. We are complete in Him. The verb is in the perfect tense. We have been completed. Isn't that great? We have been completed in Him with eternal results. When you think about the fall of man, way back in Genesis, do you realize what happened? When mankind fell, he fell into a sad state of total incompleteness. An unsaved person is spiritually incomplete because they are totally out of fellowship with God. They are morally incomplete because they have no true standard of conduct. They are mentally incomplete because they are incapable of knowing the truth. But when Jesus entered the scene... And when we give our lives to him, he takes up residence in our lives. Paul says, you are now complete in him. In 2 Peter 1.4, Peter says, you may participate in the divine nature. That's, that, that, that's mind-boggling in itself. Think about that. You've become a partaker of the divine nature. A person becomes spiritually complete in Christ. They now have fellowship with God. The life of God is in them. They become morally complete, not because we are perfect, but because they recognize, we recognize the authority of God's word and God's will. And we now have a standard and the power of the Holy Spirit to obey it and live by it. And believers are now mentally complete to fill out the completeness of Christ. Again, not in the sense of knowing everything, but in a sense of having the truth and the resident truth teacher who is the Holy Spirit. Just think about it. The one who is the head of all other spiritual beings, all other angelic beings called principalities and powers. It's his fullness that he has given us. At the end of verse 10, Paul says, he is the head over every power and authority. That's why we have victory over sin. That's why when we are submitted to God, we can resist the devil and he has to flee from us. That's why we can take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. That's why we don't have to go along with all the philosophies of the world and the insanity of the so-called truths of our culture today. When we become a follower of Christ, we received everything we needed. Everything. Listen to what Peter says, 2 Peter 1.3. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm, what heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when striving cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the life of Christ, I stand. Father, thank you that we have the rock of Jesus Christ to stand on. 
Thank you that we have the rock of your word to stand on. And I pray that through the wisdom and knowledge of Christ that comes to us through the Holy Spirit, we will be well aware of false philosophies, of false teachings, of false truth that is deemed as truth. We can always come back to Scripture and get our founding And we can resist, we can push away all else, even though it may sound good. We need to come back to Scripture. Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you for your Holy Spirit working in us. In Jesus' name, amen.